every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout, Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the county clerk in Boone County, Missouri, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And today we have a really wonderful episode with Michelle Bishop, and she's going to be speaking to us about local election authorities, making sure that voters that need accessibility get everything that they need, making sure that we have access to the ballots, and her wish list for things that we could do to help improve those experiences for voters. So welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. Thanks for having me. Love the name of the show. Can you give us kind of an overview of how you ended up working on voting rights? Sure, I'd love to. And it's so interesting because I think you all probably just know me as Michelle Bishop from the National Disability Rights Network here in D.C., where I am. But I'm actually from St. Louis City, not County, Eric. I'm sorry. But I actually am from St. Louis. So I know your territory pretty well. And that's where I got started in the business of elections. Um, I usually say it's an accident, but I'm rethinking that a little bit. It was probably more like destiny. Uh, I was a young community organizer looking for work in the civil rights world and had applied for a job that I didn't know had been filled already. And they saw my resume and they thought she would be great for this position that was open. So those of you who know St. Louis, I used to work at Paraquad Independent Living Center in St. Louis. It's a disability rights organization and they were hiring someone to do work on access to the vote for people with disabilities and get out the vote targeting people with disabilities, which is a really, really new concept when they started it. Uh, And so they called me out of the blue and it was a perfect match. One, I'm a person with a disability, but two, I'm a huge voting nerd, like a huge voting nerd. Like I registered to vote the day I turned 18 and I need you to understand it was not an election year. It's not like I was getting ready to go cast a ballot. I was just really stoked about the fact that I was eligible to vote. That's what I was thinking about when I was 18. So it was definitely... Uh, my destiny. And then I never looked back. I've been doing this work ever since. I was with Paraquad for a long time. I lived in St. Louis for 10 years. I miss it still. I get a little teary-eyed when I see the arch. Uh, But now I've been here with NDRN in DC for about eight years doing the same type of work, access to the vote for people with disabilities. But I get to look at it now from that like thousand foot national perspective, which is really fun and um, exciting. There's It's so different. And yet, so the same, no matter what jurisdiction you're talking about in the country, their problems and challenges are so unique, but they're also just so, so similar, right? Uh, Local elections authorities all over the country are dealing with a lot of the same challenges. So getting to work with them to make elections more accessible when you've got this group of people who just really want everyone to be able to cast their ballots is it's always really exciting. Right now, it's a little exhausting coming off of the 2020 election, but in general, very exciting. Speaking of the 2020 election, (laughs) I know for a lot of jurisdictions, ours included, St. Louis County included too, this was the first major election where we had new equipment from the first round of HAVA when kind of the concept of independent touchscreen voting really got started. 
I know there's been a lot of studies and a lot of surveys done about how some of the newer equipment is not as friendly as the older equipment. Was that something that you were seeing happen in the 2020 election? Yes and no. It's so interesting. I get asked about voting equipment all the time because a big focus of voting equipment is accessibility for people with all types of disabilities who can't necessarily hand mark a paper ballot. It's such a mixed bag. Every voting system is different and they all have design features I like and some I'd like to get rid of. And whenever someone asks me what my favorite voting system is, it's really this like fantasy machine that exists in my head that takes all my favorite components from like six different types of voting equipment. So in terms of what systems we're using, it's so hard to say. The thing I really feel like we noticed in 2020, and I say this being someone who was at the National Command Center for Election Protection, watching calls come in from voters, is that we didn't get nearly as many calls as we expected about voting equipment that was malfunctioning. And I think that part of that is because we have transitioned to newer equipment. A lot of the equipment that we were using in different parts of the country They're computers. They had reached the end of their natural lifespan, right? I just had to replace my laptop this year now that we're all working from home because it was like 10 years old and that's it (laughs) for the average laptop, right? And we were using equipment that sometimes was 15 years or older and, you know, more difficult to maintain. So I know how scary it is to launch a new voting system when you're looking at historic turnout in election, right? I'm sure you'd rather transition to new equipment in an off year when you've just maybe got some municipal elections and you fly under the radar a little bit more. But I think it actually went startlingly well. Uh, And what a year for it to go so well. The demands were so high with this election and all the, you know, the pandemic and all these pressures. We knew the turnout was going to be high. And who knew people were going to be watching start to finish of this process so closely, all the way through counting and certifying results and things where I feel like the average American is usually tuned out by now after election night. And elections officials really came through and ran a very smooth election and a very smooth count process. And it was really exciting to see. So I think that keeping our equipment current and keeping it well-maintained are probably the most important things we can do to make sure the election runs smoothly. In terms of equipment that's the most accessible, I think in general, we're just not there yet. I think the technology of the future is really what's going to get us there. Michelle, I think that's a great point. I would share your sentiment that we're really just not there yet because my personal experience working with voters with disabilities has been that even when we bring them in to give demonstrations on the accessible features of the voting machines, I find that it's still almost, I would categorize it as unusable in many cases for people that, I mean, it would take them 45 minutes to complete a ballot using some of these accessible features that's not vendor specific. I've seen that across the board. So it's disheartening to me to see that. And as you know, quite often, probably across the country, there are these scenarios where there's the one accessible voting machine over in the corner of the polling place. Is there a better model perhaps than to just have some device in a polling place for a voter that needs it? I agree. Just everything you're saying. Yes, absolutely. I feel like I see that everywhere I go and everyone I talk to across the country, to an extent, you know, I think equipment, voting equipment is going to catch up. Sometimes we're just using a lot of equipment that doesn't necessarily mimic the type of technology we use in our everyday lives. I have a one-year-old nephew 
that kid is better at using an iPad than I am. I, I watched him turn on a PlayStation 5 the other day. I don't know how to turn on the PlayStation 5, right? <laughs> it's just, it's so intuitive, right? He's one years old uh, and he's got this. And I think we use voting equipment that doesn't always yet really mimic the types of tech that we're all really familiar with. Voting equipment, sometimes for good reason, is slow to adopt some of those newer technologies, right? It's a delicate thing. We don't necessarily want to jump on the newest trend right away because we have to make sure it's going to work for something as important as our elections. But I think some of what you talked about is so important, that implementation. You tapped into something that I promise you, anyone who works in disability rights is going to tell you the same thing. The challenge of making sure our poll workers are trained uh, on that equipment is immense. We all know poll workers are asked to do way too much and we do not have enough time and resources to train them. It's That's kind of the, the nature of the gig. Our poll workers are amazing and so many people stepped up in 2020, but it's it's a tough role. And I think in my mind, that idea of having that one accessible machine that's kind of off in the corner somewhere because a person with a disability may come in and need to use it is part of the problem. I think that's why you see equipment that isn't set up and ready for use or hasn't been maintained as well, because we're kind of banking on the vast majority of voters not using it. And then we don't necessarily spend as much time training our poll workers on it because we're assuming they're going to process the majority of voters another way. And then you get poll workers who are a little bit intimidated by the machine. They haven't seen much of it. They're not really comfortable with it. They might be afraid to take it out of the box and set it up and have it ready for use. And we hear stories like that all the time. Voters who say it wasn't turned on and ready, or I was discouraged from using it. People I know personally who are low vision who say, I had no idea there was an accessible machine there. I can't see it. <laughs> it's across the room in a corner and no one told me. I've been personally discouraged from using the accessible equipment before. When I've gone to vote, clearly poll workers who don't know who I am, right? Uh, or they'd probably roll out the red carpet straight to the voting machine. So those are the types of issues that we see on the implementation side. And I, I think that the accessible equipment, it benefits so many different types of voters. Whether or not we think of them as the traditional person with a disability, there's so many people for whom the ability to make the font bigger or adjust the contrast or listen to the audio or just to be able to tap instead of having to fill in a bubble would benefit so many different types of voters who aren't that traditional voter with a disability that we think about. If we expanded use of that equipment and we let more voters or potentially all voters, which they do in some states, that it would be a much more integrated process. If we stop sort of separating out disability and making it a special thing that's off to the side of how people traditionally vote, then we would have to update and maintain the equipment. We would have to make sure poll workers really know the ins and outs of it because every voter who comes in the door is going to interface with that machine. And it just ups the priority level. And I think we see better implementation in places where that's done. With the increase in mail-in ballots and a lot of attention paid now to the expansion of mail-in ballots and allowing people to vote at home, and we had to end up um, we have PDF sample ballots. And so we basically just said, you know, you know what we could do and it wouldn't break any laws and it might still work is we've got the TXT and the PDF versions of our sample ballot on our website. If we direct voters to that and they mark something on that in their own privacy and they request an absentee ballot and they just package it together and they don't actually fill out 
the ballot itself that we send to them, but they package those together, then we can use our bipartisan election teams to recreate a ballot the same way we do if a military voter were to email back a ballot. And that was like the best that we could offer, which is not great. Like it's still pretty clunky. Can you speak to different ways that you may have seen other election authorities trying to, to piece that together to offer a more accessible way of voting at home? I love the word clunky. That is a little clunky, but what a creative workaround. That's that's brilliant. I mean, first and foremost, we love whenever we see elections officials who innovate and try new things. I think that's really what's going to push it forward. Even as much as we talk about voting by mail systems and uh, systems for voting in person, the customer for those systems is elections officials. Voters don't buy them. Advocates don't buy them. Elections officials buy them. So if elections officials demand better, that's how, that's how we get better. I think sometimes elections officials don't realize y'all are so powerful in this process. <laughs> and I love when you all innovate and expect more. I think it's it's such an important part of how we think about our elections. And we spend a lot of time talking about voting machines. We went into 2020 very early on uh, thinking that was going to be a big focus of our work. And then, you know, just kidding, there's a global pandemic. And all of a sudden, vote by mail became the issue for the 2020 election. And it really shined a light on the fact that we haven't necessarily always done a great job at making our vote by mail and absentee voting systems accessible for people with disabilities. That traditional model of mailing someone a piece of paper, a lot of people just can't do that privately and independently. And the solution, I think, has been they can just go vote in person. What if they can't now? <laughs> the pandemic really showed you can't you can't say my polling place is accessible, but they can vote from home or my vote from home is inaccessible, but they can go to the polling place when those things are not always options. And realistically, a person with a disability should have the same options as any other voter. And we really had to grapple with that this past year. Uh, one of the things that was scary for us was when we realized we thought because of the MOVE Act that every state had an electronic ballot delivery system for their military and overseas voters and found out some of them don't. <laughs> some states are not in compliance with the MOVE Act. We had no idea. So we thought this is going to be an easy sell. All we have to do is tell the states, you already have this system for your military voters, just open it up. At least let your voters with disabilities use it, if not everybody, and realize that it wasn't necessarily in place. Or there's going to be a lot more resistance to opening it up than we initially expected. Uh, and I think that that's something that we have to deal with because I think there were some really great workarounds like what you talked about. But like you said, they're kind of clunky. I think something you mentioned earlier, Eric, is there a better way? And I think we really have to think beyond the polling place and really start thinking very expansively. If we could redesign the whole system, what would it look like? <laughs> and, and start thinking about that. And how do we make it happen? I know it's really scary, right? We'd probably have even better turnout and a way more accessible system if we turned our vote by mail into something that was much more electronic, something that sounded a little more like, and I know this sounds scary, internet voting could probably do a world of good. We just have to figure out how to secure it, right? But I can imagine uh, a system in which you could receive that ballot electronically wherever you are, or if you don't have that technology in your home, which can be a barrier in itself, there's a kiosk that's like, an ATM or a Redbox kiosk, right, at your local grocery store, wherever it may be, uh, where you can go and, and access and cast your ballot could be a game changer. 
right? And it's so far outside the way we've always traditionally run our elections. Do I have all the answers for how we pay for that and implement that and secure that? Absolutely not. That's not my part. The only part I can tell you is how to make it accessible, right? I can tell you like the ADA standards that are going to apply to that kiosk. But I think if we kind of worked on that collaboratively and really were willing to start thinking outside the box, uh, if Congress would invest some research and development money into in, it just exploring those kinds of options, I can't imagine what we could potentially have in the future that would really open up access, not just for people with disabilities, but for everyone in a whole new way. Uh, and I think we, we could learn um, to secure it, but we have to be willing to start to take some of those steps. And I think we get a little scared, which makes sense, right? Elections are a really delicate thing. Um, we certainly don't want our elections officials to run out and always try the newest, latest and greatest thing uh, and then find out after a major election that that was a mistake. Uh, but I think it's time. We, we've had um, so many years of the Help America Vote Act and quite frankly, even more of the ADA. The ADA turned 30 last year uh, that it compel us really to do more and to do it better. And I think we've only really taken baby steps down that road because sometimes we're really attached to that traditional model. And I am too, I'll admit, I love going to my polling place and getting my I voted sticker. And I didn't get an I voted sticker when I voted by Dropbox this year. Uh, and I was really sad I didn't have my sticker. Actually, someone offered to mail me one because uh, I think I complained about it on Twitter. So I'm, I'm really attached to that traditional model too. I get it. But I'd love for us to at least start thinking about how we could really innovate and what we could potentially come up with that could be so much better. Well, first thing we have to address is, at least in my case, I think Brianna does it too. We mail the sticker with the, with the mail ballot. First thing that needs to be addressed. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Every voter wants their sticker. Absolutely. I have told a number of people, I think in some cases, there would be more outrage at a polling place if we ran out of stickers more so than ran out of ballots. Michelle, you brought up the, uh, I'll call it the specter of internet voting, but taking a couple steps back from that, there has, from my observation, been a tension between advocates of ex more accessibility and folks who are very worried about the security of electronic voting, electronic voting machines, internet voting, email ballots. So I know real questions in the recent past have been, you know, the voting machines, especially the direct record electronic machines, which were, you know, somewhat more accessible than obviously than just handmarked paper ballots, obviously. And now what we were talking about before and you alluded to was electronic transmission of ballots to voters with with disabilities so that may open up accessibility to, to some people but of course there there is a, a good amount of opposition to expanding email or electronic transmission at all in your position what are the retorts you give to folks with those concerns i mean it's not that there isn't a, a basis for some of that we should be thinking about those things we should always be thinking about how we can make our elections better in terms of making them both more accessible and more, more secure. We really have to be able to do both. If we want Americans to have faith in the process and we want to know that our elections are accurate and fair, we have to be able to do both. I think the stumbling block is that when we think about accessibility, it really requires us to be forward-looking. Technology has made the world, not just elections, but the world, so much more accessible for so many people with disabilities than we ever could have imagined. And we really have to be willing to kind of look and move forward if we want to make it more accessible. 
but a lot of the election security resistance has come from a place of fear. And I say fear in particular because it's a a fear that voting machines could be hacked. We don't have any evidence that's ever happened, right? Uh, We just fear that it could. And so that causes us to kind of run backwards, right? We're running back towards paper ballots, forgetting that's how we ended up here in the first place, right? Punch cards are how we got here. That is a type of paper ballot that failed (laughs) drastically. Um, And so really moving back towards the technologies of the past because they feel more secure. Um, Do I believe that they're necessarily more secure and that we didn't have any elections security issues when we had all paper ballots? Absolutely not. Paper ballots are not a fix-all, but they've become a real sticking point because they make people feel more secure about elections, despite the fact that paper is very difficult to make accessible. Because paper ballots have become the goal instead of a potential solution to a goal of election security, we've hit a stopping point in our ability to talk to each other. If the goal was to make it as accessible and secure as possible, I think we could do a lot more. If the goal is just to get paper ballots for the sake of paper ballots, then there we hit a point where there's really not much more that we can do together. And I think that that's been really problematic. I really wish it wasn't that way. If elections officials and security folks and accessibility folks came together and could all really truly work together, oh my gosh, we could solve all our problems. I can't imagine what we could achieve, right? Those three very distinct types of expertise could really, really move things forward. But we have to be willing to to take some steps in that direction. Some of it, I think, is maybe the nature of cybersecurity work, right? If you do cybersecurity, that's what you do. You find the vulnerabilities. And there's a value to that. Um, I'm I'm a fan of friendly hackers. We need them to look at our systems and find those vulnerabilities so we can fix them. But we have to move beyond poking holes in everything to figuring out what some new solutions are going to be. We we talk about elections with integrity, but I think for an election to truly have integrity, it needs to be accessible in addition to being secure, right? If we achieve election security by disenfranchising a large number of voters, then our elections are not actually fair and representative of the will of the people. Accessibility is a really critical part of integrity. And I think in some ways we really have lost sight of that. From your view now at the national level and before even when you worked in St. Louis, I know that you interact with a number of election authorities all the time and you speak at conferences all the time and get to talk to them. What are common things that you see that local election authorities can do to help make sure that elections are accessible to everyone, things that might be overlooked in a, in a common way? Oh, that's a great question. Because some of the things we're talking about, they're big and they'd require a change in law or uh, an investment from Congress, right? Things that maybe if you're listening to this podcast and you're a local elections official, you don't really have control over. Neither do I, to be fair. Uh, But I think there's a lot we could do right now. Easy things that I think we miss sometimes. Um, If you have a website, is your website fully accessible? Um, Is it actually like WCAG 2.1 AA compliant, right? Which would be the standard. (laughs) And if you have a web developer who doesn't know what that means, that's a problem in itself. (laughs) You probably don't have an, an accessible website. Looking at that. So voters rely on those websites so much now for information. 
And it's not a part of the process of actually casting your ballot. But if that's what you're relying on to make sure I'm registered and find out where my polling place is and look up what's going to be on my ballot, it becomes critically important. Sample ballots. We see a lot of sample ballots that are a PDF that may not be accessible, especially if you scan a piece of paper into a PDF. It's just a giant picture. So it's not something that accessible technology hooked up to a computer can read. You've got to actually like make a digital PDF to make sure it's accessible. And there's resources online. You can find out how to do that. Those are some really simple things. Um, working with disability rights organizations, we're in membership associations. So we have an affiliate organization in every state and territory. They're funded through the Help America Vote Act to work on access to the vote for people with disabilities. If you have problematic polling places you're concerned about, I promise you, they would love to go look at your polling places with you and help figure out some solutions. If there's ways you can adapt it, or maybe a more accessible location, we can talk into being a polling place that's a couple blocks away, sometimes happens as well. They'd love to help you solve those problems. I know it's really hard as an elections official after election day to say we tried really hard and this was the best we could get because sometimes that's true. Um, the world around us isn't totally accessible, so it makes it difficult to have polling places that are accessible to make elections better. Uh, if it were me, I'd rather have the disability rights organization in my state next to me saying, no, really, we tried with them and it, it, this is the best we could do. We're trying. Right. Uh, I'd rather be in that position because I know if things go wrong on Election Day, elections officials are the first to be smeared in the news and dragged into a lawsuit. I know that that happens. We see it all the time. Um, I'd, I'd rather have those disability rights advocates on my side before Election Day trying to help make it better. Um, involving people with disabilities in the process. Eric mentioned really early on, you know, we have voters with disabilities come and try out the equipment. I love it. They're going to give you tons of feedback. They're probably going to give you some things you can't fix right now. Uh, but all of it has value and is good to know. And including people with disabilities in the process is going to teach you some things you never thought of. We're a huge community and we're all very, very different. Different types of disabilities can be very different. Even two people who have the same disability don't experience it the same way. So the more you bring your voters with disabilities into your process from the start uh, and let them provide some guidance, help make some decisions, help do some problem solving, uh, you'll learn so much from those voters. I think that's that's something that's really easy to do and, and doesn't really cost anything uh, and also helps inspire confidence on the part of your voters, which I can't undersell in you know this moment where we're seeing um, a lot of rhetoric that is really undercutting Americans' faith in elections right now. I think the more transparent and open you are and you bring your voters into the process, the more you're going to have their trust. I love Dropbox voting. That became a big thing in 2020. I even voted that way. I'm so glad I did because during early voting in Virginia, there was a four-hour line <laughs> at the early voting site near me. That was early voting and that was on a pretty regular basis. I saw the line it went kind of down the block and around the corner and down the next street. And I was in and out in 10 minutes because I just dropped my ballot off at a Dropbox. I love it. I'm a fan. I really hope Dropboxes will stick around because I think they, they don't work for everybody, but there are some voters for whom they really work. And for those voters, I think it's worth it. Uh, one of the things we really have to start doing, though, is thinking about how to make them accessible. The design of the Dropbox itself and the placement of the Dropbox. 
We heard from some voters who voted by Dropbox who loved it, but they were like, that Dropbox was in the middle of a grassy field and I use a wheelchair or it was on a curb, like a really high curb. And I think the assumption was everyone would drive a car up to this Dropbox, but I don't drive a car and that curb was a problem for me. So, and those kinds of things can be tricky. I think that's where bringing disability rights organizations and voters with disabilities into the process is helpful. Because uh, if you think you've got a gangbusters location for your Dropbox, they might look at it and say, this is the one thing you haven't thought about. Maybe we move it right over there and it's going to be much more accessible for way more people. Um, I think it, it can't be stated enough the importance of bringing partners into the process because you're never going to think of everything by yourself. I've been seeing it highlighted a lot in election newsletters and also just from the people that we've been talking to, the most successful local election authorities get surrounded by an advisory group, bring in other voices, and that's how they get their innovation going. Oh, absolutely. I think that nobody knows more about running elections in this country than our local elections officials. You all deal with just the minutia of what it takes to run an election, and that expertise can't be replaced. But the idea that an elections official should have to be an expert in that and an expert in the ADA and people with disabilities and an expert in cybersecurity and probably 20 other things, especially when we get to local elections officials who also wear multiple hats, right? If you're that elections official who runs elections and you're also in charge of like marriage deeds and cattle branding or all kinds of things that I've heard, it's, it's just impossible. It's an unrealistic expectation, but I don't think it's one that elections officials have to meet. You don't have to be an expert in all those things if you're willing to bring those folks in. Uh, and I think we can come from a place of, you know about elections, but I know about access. And let's take those two things and put them together and see what we can achieve. Uh, I think it it just makes the work easier. You don't have to figure it out on your own. Michelle, I've got a question that I'll probably uh, put here inartfully, but one concern and challenge I have heard from many, especially rural election officials especially from, you know, a place with a relatively low population is that, you know, I put these machines up every election, nobody ever uses them. Um, you know, I, I heard one person say once, you know, I, I know the one blind voter in my county and he comes down to the courthouse with his mom and she helps him fill out the ballot. And what do I need to put these machines up for? Um, in a metropolitan area, you mentioned Paraquad in the St. Louis area they're very active. They reach out to the election officials here. I don't know to what extent those kind of organizations exist in more rural areas. How can this, I'll call it a divide, be bridged in the rural areas? I mean, there, there's not a lot of resources for rural election officials to do a lot of these things we've discussed, and there's a gap there. There is, for sure. It's difficult. I will say, first and foremost, you're right, there's not enough resources uh, and I feel like we do our part being in D.C. We are constantly uh, hammering Congress to give you all more money because I do not think we are putting enough funding into elections. Elections are critical. That said, I do hear sometimes from local elections officials who say we put up this equipment and no one uses it. And my first question is always, how did you let voters know it was there? What was your rollout plan? <laughs> and sometimes there wasn't one. And so voters may not even know it's there. You also are talking about voters who may not recognize it if they go into a polling place and see it. You know, someone who's blind or low vision doesn't know. 
if that machine is off in the corner. And if they were an active voter for 30 years before that, and like you said, brought someone with them to help them to vote, they're going to keep doing that until they know that that equipment is available. Because on the flip side, I also know people who started voting when they turned 18 and were in their 50s, 60s, or 70s the first time they were able to vote independently and privately because of that equipment. People who will cry when they talk to you about that experience. So I think the more voters know it's there, the more they want to leverage it. I know there are budget shortfalls, right, to do a big, robust rollout plan. Uh, but can we do any earned media? Have you gone on the local news and talked about this new equipment and how to ask for it and where it's going to be available? Have you gotten a feature in the local newspaper about it, on the radio, any of those things that are available uh, that don't require a lot of cash to make happen to let voters know that this is there? Is it on your website? Is it in your communications? that go out to voters so that they know it's available. I think that's been one of the bigger barriers. I also think we we assume sometimes there's no people with disabilities here. I've heard that sometimes from local elections officials. We don't have any people with disabilities. I think that's extremely unlikely looking at how many of us there are in the United States that there's a jurisdiction anywhere that doesn't have anyone. Uh, what's more likely in my mind is that they, the process has been inaccessible to them for so long that they're not asking for that equipment or they're not coming to the polling place anymore, or they may not even be voting anymore. And so I think we really have to do some work to get those folks to come on back, right? It's like uh, when a local business has that sign up, this is like under new management, that's to tell everyone to come on back. Whatever drove you away last time, it has changed. Come on back and give us another try. I think we need to do a little bit of that. Uh, I don't I don't know that people always entirely understand what it's like to be a person with a disability and to have a system to be completely inaccessible to you. It, it's not just a barrier. It's not just a frustration. It's also a signal that you're not wanted here. We don't care if you vote. Right. That is the message, whether or not that's how you feel about it. There really is the message that's received if we don't bother to make it accessible to everyone. And so I think sometimes we underestimate how many potential voters never came back after they've had a terrible experience or 10 terrible experiences. And I think we really have to do the work to show that we are making changes because we want everyone to vote and have their voices heard. And there's, there's a, if not a monetary investment, a time investment involved in that, an investment of our, our energy and our people power, for sure. Where, I guess, where are you hoping to see elections moving in the future in your ideal world? What would be like the most accessible election that ever happened? I think my ideal for the most accessible election, and this is not a super satisfying answer, but I think it's the one thing that works, is to have a broad range of options for all voters. Because all voters, not just voters with disabilities, all voters are so different. And what works for one person doesn't work for all, right? One Tuesday is not going to work for everyone who's not able uh, to get out of work and get away from all their responsibilities to go. But moving into a Saturday isn't going to work for people who have those responsibilities on a Saturday. And making it a holiday isn't going to work for the folks that now have to go to work for all the election day holiday sales, right? It's probably a smattering of all those things. It's more like a whole period 
of voting more than relying on one day, having multiple methods for casting your ballot. For some people, voting in person works best. For some, it's voting by mail. For some, it's dropping it off at a drop box. Um, having just different ways to access the information, having a robust plan to get that information out there and make sure voters know what options are available to them. But it's, it's probably in everything but the kitchen sink method. So that if there's one way of voting that works for you and makes it doable, it's there for you and making sure that voters know that they have all those options. And that's big. I'm sorry. It's a big answer. And if you're a local elections official, you're probably thinking that sounds like a lot of time and money and resources. <laughs> and I suppose it is. Um, but I think it is what truly makes it work for voters. And I think the thing that our elections officials need to make that a reality is a lot more support from their state governments and their federal government in, the ter in terms of funding and in terms of listening to their input and power to make those decisions. Thanks everybody for listening to another episode of High Turnout Wide Margins. We're very thankful uh, that we had Michelle Bishop today. We hope you join us again very soon for another episode of High Turnout Wide Margins. <laughs>